Every story needs a hero, and every story needs a villain. Welcome back to Hero and the Villain. My name is Drew. Appreciate you hitting play. Finding us on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and wherever you stream your podcast episodes. So yeah, we're kind of on a little spree of branching out the last couple episodes. Talking about sex workers' rights, we had Eric Sprankle in for a really great conversation on sexual psychology. We talked with Jason Lennox, who got his satanic coloring book project off the ground and running full speed ahead. But I felt it was time to kind of dip back in towards dark psychology for a little bit. Great subject for today and timely as well. I do get asked... I don't say all the time because I hate when people on any sort of social media platform or podcast say that because it's not like 10,000 people are hitting hitting me up in my email. But I do get asked why I'm so into dark stuff, why I'm attracted to dark stuff, why I'm into evil, heavy music, why all the black clothes or satanic imagery or symbolism, why do I have all these pieces of dark art on my walls or why do I watch horror movies? Well, first off, it has to be said that what others see as dark or evil, it's completely subjective as far as I'm concerned. I love BDSM and I don't think it's dark or wrong. It's just a different way to do something. It's a label given to something not understood or judged by many for which they don't have the patience or exhibit the patience to try to understand it. Anton LaVey, the founder of the church of Satan once said, good is what you like. Evil is what you don't like. It's very true. And we talked about this way back on the early episodes of this show. We had a two part thing about superheroes and villains and their psychological makeup why we can be attracted to what is considered dark or the villainous healthy confrontation with our shadow selves, as Carl Jung stated, can lead to new strengths. Unhealthy attempts can unleash our worst selves. And I think I've done a pretty good job in my own life, figuring out my dark parts and accepting them and embracing them. Sometimes it might take a little bit longer depending on the element that I uncover, but It's up to you to figure out what dark parts you want to accept, embrace, and integrate, and other ones that you want to try to change, however you see fit. But I'm not here to necessarily talk about my stuff, because my passion for metal, horror movies, kink, black cats, Satan, tattoos, evil symbols on rings... These are a few of my favorite things. (laughs) They're definitely the things that make me go. I'm going to talk more about why there is a, let's say an attraction, but it's almost become an obsession that I've seen in my lifetime to what is considered 
evil or dark. So we're going to lean towards horror movies, but we're going to start with serial killer documentaries because that is something that I think people have not just gotten into recently. I think whenever there is a documentary on a famous serial killer, a lot of people get into it and it becomes the whole water cooler talk of have you seen such and such? Let's go back, rewind it a little bit. In the late 1800s, before America got its first taste of serial killer mania, it swept London first with Jack the Ripper, the murders in the Whitechapel district. After which, America got its own first serial killer, H.H. Holmes, 1894. And that got the fascination off the ground. After that, from Ed Gein to Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, who technically didn't kill anybody, but we know his story. Movies, novels, shows, all inspired creative types to write and direct dramatic on-screen versions of killers for normal, everyday Dick and Janes to be obsessed with. Now, initially, the term serial killer was used by law enforcement more than it was media. Until in the early 80s, 1980s, not 1880s, 1980s, whether it was to be correct or create a call to panic to the public, the term became widespread due to a mass media blitz. And its poster boy, Ted Bundy, helped push this even further. It helped that his trial was the first ever televised for a serial killer in America. And since then, serial killers have inspired so many movies and books. It's given Americans the chance to dive deeper into their own minds, living vicariously through main characters, villains, since you can't play any of this stuff out in real life, right? Without repercussions. People fear violence happening to them, but they can't also stop watching it or watching it happen to others whether it be real or true crime documentaries. People would like you to believe that this is some sort of a new thing, good versus evil, but that's kind of what drives religion, right? We've been around it forever. The story of light versus dark isn't new to humans, isn't new to Americans. And because the fall of someone's potential good makes for a better story, we become drawn to the why of it all. If you look back to, say, oh, 2020 because it's fresh in our brains, Netflix's true crime series got a huge ratings push due to circumstances involving everything in the country being tense as fuck, and we're stuck at home and all this nervous energy. And while it was reported that alcohol sales skyrocketed in 2020, it also was no surprise that shows like true crime got a huge boost in their ratings and viewership. 2020 was the ultimate pinnacle, the apex of a mess where everyone was attempting to make sense of the chaos, the why, the how. Shows like True Crime plays into our imagination and empowerment as if we're solving the crime right next to the FBI or the detectives. It gives us this this satisfaction of knowing what we think is the solution. And it still plays into our good versus evil obsession, like adult fairy tales. Even though we know that there's the result that we've seen and studied of what happened to a prick like Ted Bundy, 
we let the entertainment of seeing the process trump the predictability of the known outcome. Now, something that's also really fascinating about watching violence, how it plays into our own survival instincts. I want you to think back to when you were a child and that timeless game of hide and seek. What hide and seek really is, it's a simulation of predator versus prey where we are almost taught in some weird and entertaining way that we survive danger when the threat was not really a threat. Think of how many horror movies that you've seen and think of how many try to get you to put yourself into the shoes of the stalked, the person trying to survive the close call, trying to escape death and the blade of the villain. It's an inside joke right there. Not many will get that one, <laughs> but, but more than any of this, we're just into our own darkness, whether we want to admit it or not. Murderers and vile people like rapists, of course, disgust us, but still the intrigue is there, which is why ratings on those types of shows are so consistently up. Why do people do these things? We always ask first, and we wish to see someone like a Ted Bundy get the electric chair for good reason. You could be standing next to the the future Ted Bundy in line buying cat food and he would never know it. There have been cases of killers that didn't have bad upbringings or they had very normal childhoods. So in hearing this and watching it on a show, it allows us to view the extreme ends of what humans are capable of. Most folks won't go that far into the darkest of the dark sides, but a lot of people would also watch someone else's dark side. They'd rather do that than look at their own. So our morals tell us that investigating these parts of ourselves are wrong, but we're quick to explore it through the lives of others. Philip Tetlock of the University of California talks about the taboo trade-off. Humans are enthralled by the naughty, the bad, or the villainous but our code of ethics we've established over our lives keep our brains from ever taking those really nasty thoughts too seriously. So in watching any of these true crime shows or documentaries about the baddest of the bad, we see others who did follow these thoughts and put them into action, doing something that we've convinced ourselves we'd never be capable of doing. Grace Blair, a very fine author, states, we love to safely Grace Blair, a very fine author, states, we love to safely observe our own dark capabilities without any consequences. Now there is also something to be said for people like myself and many I know, if our interests might seem a bit dark or depraved compared to Susie Q out there, then so be it, because good is what you like, evil is what you don't like. But if you admittedly aren't bothered by blood and guts, in horror movies or the worst of the worst in true crime, there's reasons for that. Now, of course, you choose what you watch. And if you already embrace your nastiest of thoughts and look at them and observe them, then you more often then you more than often want to test your own limits of what could make you uncomfortable. We all have a scale. For some, a movie like we'll say The Ring 
is the worst horror movie you could ever watch. Jump scares are your nemesis. You can't go anything more extreme than that. For others, it's a Serbian film, which is just depraved as fuck, and I don't really recommend anybody seeking that movie out to watch it, but that's on the but that's on the opposite end of a movie like The Ring. For many people, somewhere in between the two is kind of where their limit is. But either way, you still know it's a movie when you're watching it, no matter how tame or fucked up it gets. But if I showed you a movie like Dead Alive, the Peter Jackson uh, gore horror film, which is just ridiculous, if you've ever seen it, it's campy, but it's fun, but it's gallons and buckets of fake blood. Uh, it might gross some of you out. Some of you, like I would, would laugh because it's clearly just a gore fest. It's makeup fest and silly and supposed to be ridiculous. But if I showed you a cow being killed in a slaughterhouse with a bolt gun to its skull, it would hit your gut like a, like a punch because you know that beautiful animal actually died while it was being filmed. A 1994 study from Haight, Rosen, and... Uh, Macaulay states that horror gives us that chance to psychologically distance ourselves from what we watch since we tell ourselves it's only a movie. What we watch horror for gore and the thrill for problem solving, these are directly tied into fearfulness, empathy, and sensation-seeking emotions and behaviors. And studies show that people either empathize with the person being stalked in the movie or they intentionally put themselves into the shoes of the killer. Dr. Dieter Johnson says that in a study she conducted uh, showed people who watched for gore purposes had lower empathy scores, high sensation seeking, and they identified with the killer. Thrill watchers had a higher empathy and sensation seeking and identified with the victim more, but enjoyed the suspense elements of the film more than the gore. Now, even Carl Jung commented on early horror films stating that they tapped into primordial archetypes buried deep within our collective subconscious. Images like the mother or the shadow play huge roles in horror films, especially early ones. These archetypes, which we've talked about in earlier episodes that are deeply buried in our own unconscious minds can be revealed at times in expression through art, music, literature, to name a few. The shadow, of course, is the darkest of these, and since that is our hide of our Jekyll and Hyde, the side of our personality that dreams of all those nasty things we just could never bring ourselves to do, intentionally, of course. Though we allow it to act subconsciously or unconsciously, we un knowingly feed it at various times. Watching horror movies and true crime is one of the ways we do this. So I'm going to give you a quick exercise if you're listening to this to try out. I want you to think of the absolute worst thought you could possibly come up with or have in regards to others. We're talking in, in context with like serial killers, uh, violent movies, things like that. Like the worst thing that you could come up with thinking about doing to somebody else. Now, the trick is when you think of that at first, you're going to force yourself to water that down and 
try to not think of it and think of something tamer. You'll try to divert your brain somewhere else. This is one way you can tap into your shadow self when you dive into the deepest, darkest parts of yourself, right? When we watch horror movies and true crime, our brains are processing a lot underneath the surface. Back in the early 20s, movie studios had very low budgets. A lot, lot of early films were silent. So they did not put money into things like plots or character developments. They specifically went after how a monster looked. The early horror movies, Faces of Death, The Vampire, The Werewolf, uh, Frankenstein, things like that. All the money went into making it look a certain way to provoke a certain emotion and reaction. So horror was basically a new genre. People didn't really have much to leverage it against. Everything was new back then. But people's minds were fascinated by the visuals of these vampires and Jekyll and Hyde's evil transformations. It really wasn't until the mid-50s with Hammer Studios in London where they started putting more into the production that our shadow selves got more invested in the shock and the horror and the gore. When Technicolor was invented, now we could see blood. It wasn't just black on the screen. It was red. And blood and guts got a boost. It got this new level of shock fed directly into our curiosity. And then through the 60s, the demand for more violent on-screen deaths increased to satisfy all these new emerging morbid sides of ourselves that kind of ran parallel with things that were going on in the world. Once filmmakers decided it would be more shocking to have relate, uh, relate, once filmmakers decided that vampires and werewolves weren't really shocking, it made more sense to make the villains slightly relatable, such as a Norman Bates in Psycho, normal guy, just crazy. The genre of horror finally found its whole stride. And yes, later on, Freddy and Jason eventually became box office smashes in the 80s. And horror movies would constantly allow the destroyer in the films to, you know, kind of change its mask and its tools of, of violence. The killers and the villains that scare us the most are the ones that remind us of our darker selves, the normal people. We relate with parts of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho more than we would with Leatherface. And we live vicariously through these horror movies, uh, uh, damsel in distress, shall we say, like the final girl as they are called the character that lives because our minds like to think that we can overcome the worst of the worst. We're creatures that are violent by design at our core. It's part of our survival instinct. These are amplified by our traumas and fears in a modern life and kickstarted into high gear, witnessing on-screen deaths and the how could they moments, watching the trials of the real world murderers our shadow selves being watered and growing through seeing the darkest of what we think happening right in front of us. Every single one of us has that you inside of you, whether you want to admit it or not, or you realize it or not. The part that relishes in the pain or the misery of another, it's there. It's why we think the anti-hero is cool sometimes. It's why we can't look away from traffic accidents as we pass it. It's why we think Jeffrey Dahmer is horrific, but we want to know all about his inner workings. 
why we cheat on partners, why we secretly judge others or kill in the name of religion. The shadow is in all of humanity, every single one of us, with horror and true crime. We just get to see it in the comfort and the safety of our own homes. Beings that this is probably going to be the last episode before Halloween. Here are my top five favorite horror movies of all time and little brief explanation of them. Number five, Demons, or its original title is Demoni. It's a Dario Argento 1980s horror film, which is pure fun. It's the story of a bunch of moviegoers that go to a special showing of a film, and the film comes alive, and they all get bitten and turned into demons, and it's hysterical. Number four, the French movie Inside. Basically, it's the new French extremities take on home invasion, and it's somewhere between out-of-control gore and art, because French movies have this certain artistic flair to them. Dead Alive, which I mentioned earlier. Number three, Peter Jackson, same guy did Lord of the Rings, did this hella campy early 90s film. It's insanity, and it's so much fun to watch. Martyrs, number two, another new French extremity film, somehow combines extreme torture with philosophical questions about afterlife. And then number one favorite movie of mine of all time, when it comes to horror films, the original 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's lo-fi, it's gritty, it's dirty, and at the time, there was nothing else like it. And that is one of those films that kind of sparked modern horror movies to happen in the first place, along with movies like The Exorcist and Halloween. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre came before those. And boy, did it set the country on fire when it did. So when you're listening to this, now the next time you hit play in a horror movie and it provokes a certain reaction in you, you have a better inkling as to why. Thanks for listening. Have a safe Hallow's Eve. If we don't hear from each other before then, thank you for checking out the show. 